0: Alright folks, this is it, the last lecture in Mythology. Thank you for coming all this way with me. I am glad that we've had our time together, as tumultuous as it may have been. Um, Before we get started talking about Oedipus today, I want to talk about the bureaucratic details here. I intended to sort of include this in the last lecture, but it didn't work out because I had all my information wrong. Um, Now I have the real information, and it's kind of dire. Um, but it's also kind of important just to get this across. Uh, so anyway, um, first off, let me stress, uh, you're probably listening to this uh, around May 4th-ish um, or May 6th if you're in my 14 section. At any rate, it'll be that week, the first week in May. Hopefully at this point your research paper is already completed and turned in. If not, get it to me as soon as humanly possible. Um, And you're probably looking at finishing this class literally a week from today. Um, Next week is it. Um, So let me just sort of walk through my expectations for you over the next week and a half, because this is going to be a little different from how we've conducted the class, even in its online format. Um, So first off, there's no quiz this week. There's no discussion boards this week. For all I know, you don't even have to read Oedipus. Like, I'm not going to have any way of checking on you. There is not going to be anything to hold you accountable to it um, besides reading extra credit to uh, the Antigone, which will be due, uh, I think, last week, along with the the term paper um, because of the old schedule, not the new one. Um, At any rate, that means this is it. Like, the Q&A session this week, I do hope to talk about uh, Oedipus a good bit. But for the most part, I'm going to want to focus on the final exam. Uh, any exam review we do is going to be during that Q&A session. Um, so I imagine that I'll probably go longer than I usually do. Uh, if there are still questions being asked, then we will go as long as we need to. Um, likewise, if you want to meet with me privately or even like as a group later on in the week, just let me know. We can work that out. Um, all of this can be done. Um, because that's it. Uh, For both my classes, May 11th for the section 12 and May 12th for section 14, that's the date of the final. Um, And importantly, that's not just the date of the final, that is also the last day I am accepting any assignments, period, the end, case closed. Um, Now up until this point I am willing to accept any written assignment, late or otherwise. I know some people have struggled with getting the assignments in on time. I know at the time that you're listening to this, probably several of you have not completed your research paper. Fine, get it to me as soon as humanly possible. I will dock points based on how late it comes to me. Um, so if you are lis- listening to this right now, I probably have not graded or I probably have not graded the research papers yet, um, and you. Probably have some time to to work on it before I start getting heavy-duty dropping points. Figure, like, you're losing 10 at this point. Um, But later I'll be taking 20 or even 30. Um, But here's the deal. If it doesn't come to me by the end of the day on either the 11th or the 12th, depending on which class you are, I am not going to accept it anymore. You know I've been generous with the due dates. You know I have been handing out extensions like candy. I cannot cannot fudge those dates, that is a hard deadline. Um, The 15th of May is the date I have to have all of my grades into Montclair because graduation purposes and other things. Um, Likewise I'm pretty sure the Sussex deadline for my grades for my philosophy class is even sooner than that so I cannot play with those dates. In that time I have to grade all the research papers, I have to grade all the final exams, I have to grade all of the other like peripheral assignments like the extra credit assignments that have been turned in or late papers that people have turned in or like I'm going back and forth to students if they had problems with their assignments I cannot budge that date Um, so if it's not in by the 11th it doesn't count if you're in my section 12 class if you are if it is not in by the uh, 12th it does not count if you were my section 14 class Um, I cannot stress that enough these are not deadlines I can play with Um, but again like assuming you're listening to this May 4th or earlier um, you have that much time to get late stuff to me. Get it to me as quickly as humanly possible. I am probably swamped at this point writing research papers. Keep in mind I'm recording this like two weeks in advance because I know that all hell is about to break loose. Um, but I really like as I will give you what I can but there's only so much that I can do. But if you get the papers to me before the deadline I will count them in some capacity. Um, if it comes in like 1201 May 13th in the morning it's not going to count. Um cannot play with that. Um so if you do have any questions about the bureaucracy or the details, let me know. Um also as far as the final exam is concerned, I am planning on tinkering with it with a little bit. Probably next week I will do that. Um so I will have updates to you if I change it radically. Um for the most part I just want to change the formatting because the midterm was a giant mess. Um, like, I didn't like the way that the matching worked, um, I wasn't terribly fond of, like, the, the sort of slapdash, um, fill-in-the-blank stuff that I had for the gods and goddesses, um, and honestly, like, I have my sneaking suspicions that several people uh, cheated on the exam, because, you know, I can't really do anything about it uh, when it's online, so I'm gonna try and make the exam a little bit more cheat-proof. Probably by asking trickier questions and spending a little bit more time doing open-ended stuff than I would have normally. Um, so, like, I'll update you about that. But you can generally expect something roughly similar to what we saw at the midterm. For sure, there will be two parts: the essay section and the in-class like objective portion. Um, but I suspect that the objection portion, the objective portion, will have more short answer questions significantly fewer multiple choice questions um and a greater reliance on like you actually writing stuff that you know about so it becomes more difficult for you to just like google search answers to multiple choice questions um again like i know that there are tools and resources like the lockdown browser i have never found that to be a terribly good use of one's time because it just like frustrates you and it frustrates me and then you just pick up your phone and you cheat past it anyway if you are really determined to um so yeah probably not going to do the lockdown browser don't don't care um instead i'm i like making my tests a little bit more foolproof and requiring you to do more thinking so bad for you if you were really hoping to, like, do memorization as your way through. Um, The other alternative I might do is I might include some of those same sections, but I might, like, make a really strict time limit on them. Um, I've done that in the past. I think that works for the quizzes because there's only so much Google searching you can do when you've got the seconds on the clock ticking down. Um, So I might break it into multiple assignments and then work with it that way um, we'll see. I'll give you more information as I work it out, so probably next week I'll give you an announcement, um, or rather this week, next week of when I'm writing this, um, in the next week or so, you will get announcements, we will talk about the final exam. For the Q&A session, again, I expect we'll be spending a lot of time talking about the final review this week, um, so by all means, ask me any questions there, I'm sure by then I'll have it worked out, um, the final should be up and running at that point. Um, other than that, again, let me reiterate, get those late assignments to me as soon as possible, and if I don't receive them by the time that your, uh, final exam is due, then it just does not happen. It does not exist. Either the 11th or the 12th, that's the deadline, and then by the 15th I've gotta have grades in, so it's very inflexible. Um... Anyway, enough about my woes, grading, and bureaucracy stuff. If you do have any more questions, obviously feel free to email me, as always. Um, We can definitely talk about this stuff in the Q&A as well. Um, But I do want to talk about Oedipus, and while I don't think I'll probably fill out an entire lecture on this one, because I've got other stuff to do, um, and and I suspect that you don't want to listen to yet another lecture as much as you've enjoyed the ones up to this point, I hope... Um, I generally try and keep this one short, usually because, like, there's a lot of other stuff going on, and there's a lot of other things to talk about. Um, but one of the things I want to focus on with Oedipus is the, the structure, the style. Um, this is a Greek tragedy, obviously. It is the one example of a Greek tragedy we have in this class, besides that little chunk of Euripides' Medea, which we read much earlier in the semester. What I want to stress is that this is... A totally viable way of communicating myth, but it is also a fairly late development in Greek culture. Um, like, don't get me wrong, the, the actual business of theater had been in the Greek culture for a long time, um, but Sophocles and the tragedies specifically are very much an invention of classical Greek culture, post Homer, post-Hesiod, um, at the same time as you have guys like Plato and Socrates and the philosophers running around, at the same time as you've got, like, Euclid and Pythagoras and the big mathematicians doing their thing, we're talking about, like, Golden Age classical Athens when we're talking about these, um, these theatrical productions, um, and on the one hand, they have a history that is rooted in the Greek traditions. Um, like the big theater that you see in Athens, like there are great pictures, you can Google them online. Um, it's still standing today. They would perform theater-like projects, comedies for the most part, um, on festival days pretty frequently. Like We're talking about like multiple performances every month because there were just so many dang festivals. Um, And these were usually part of the festivals to Dionysus. Um, Like you would put on a theatrical production not just to like reverence and worship the gods in the same way that like all myth-telling was revering and worshiping the gods, like acknowledging their roles in our lives, retelling their stories as a way of sort of engaging with them. Um, But also like as part of the festivities, um, like you would dismiss from a big comedy devoted to Dionysus and then you'd go have an orgy or something. Like this is pretty normal practice Um, for greek festivities in the early part of the greek career the tragedies developed out of that tradition and sophocles is considered one of like the greatest of the tragedians um, or at least the greatest of like the early tragedians things change with euripides from what i understand Um, but i also want to stress that like compared to other theatrical traditions that you're familiar with, probably thinking especially of the Elizabethan tradition because I imagine that your high school professors made you read lots of Shakespeare. Um, It's similar in some ways and very different in others. Um, So I want to sort of like draw a contrast here to sort of like get the record straight because I don't want your Shakespeare knowledge bleeding in with your, you know, Sophocles knowledge. So Shakespeare is writing in the Renaissance, this is like 2,000 years after Sophocles. He is writing primarily to a bunch of poor people who are paying tickets to get in and see the plays, but also like trying to impress the rich you know, nobles, um, the polit- politicians, the queen, the, the various cabinet members, all that. Like Going to the Globe Theater was, was something fun for everyone, children of all ages, um, people of all intelligences and refinements. That's not exactly the same thing as the Greek theater. Um, Insofar as it's fun for all ages, yes. Like the Greek tragedies and the Greek comedies were probably presented to people of all social standings. Um, There were probably seats for the nobles. There were probably seats for the peasants. There were probably seats for the slaves. Um, Everybody could go. Um, They also were funded not by ticketing the way that it was in Elizabethan times and the way that it is now so much as they were funded by like the temple. Um, when you give it the temple that's so they can put on performances like this one or at least that's my best guess. Um, it's not terribly well documented or at least I don't know about the documentation well enough. Um, but at the same time the tradition within the theater was also really different. Like you'll probably remember from your Shakespeare knowledge like Shakespeare would. Shakespeare basically wrote plays that could map onto a contemporary setting. Like, you can film Hamlet as a Hollywood movie and it doesn't take a whole lot of transition. Um, Filming Oedipus would be a big difference. Um, You'll notice one of the major things that's going on in Oedipus is it's all one scene. Like, there are admittedly different broken-up sections. Like, every now and again the chorus comes on and, like, all the actors get a break and they all hang out behind scenes and supposedly time is passing. But it isn't really time passing in the same way that, like, you can cut in a movie and then, like, cut to, you know, 10 days later. Or do, like, a slow transition fade and it implies that, like, a whole lot of time has passed. Or you do a montage and it's, like, entire months are going by. Um, all of the action of this drama all of the action of Oedipus Rex and most of the Greek tragedies and comedies happen in real time um like it happens in one location usually without like any significant scenery or setting or props um it's just a bunch of people going on stage in their very famous masks with the smiley faces or the unhappy faces if it was a tragedy as it would be in this case and they just act it out um The main things to keep track of is you'll typically have your tragic figure, in this case Oedipus. um, You'll have your chorus, and you'll have the various people who sort of like flit around and engage with the tragic figure. The chorus usually represents the people... Of whatever city where this is taking place so you'll notice like in Oedipus especially Oedipus is obviously the king of Thebes um, after his whole interaction with the Sphinx um, he is trying to figure out why Thebes is suffering from plague rather unfortunate Um, but you'll notice that the chorus keeps popping in and they're meant to be Theban senators by which we mean like high-ranking Theban nobles not really important senators like the first senator who actually like talks to Oedipus and has action with him, but they're sort of like the body of senators weighing in on judgment on Oedipus. And this is pretty typical of uh, the Greek theatrical system. Like you usually have a set of people assigned to be the chorus who sort of weigh in as both the public and as the judges of whatever is going on. They are our audience perspective character. They are our audience interaction character. And But unlike the audience, they don't know what's happening. Um... Remember, just like the Homeric epics, just like the Iliad and the Odyssey, everyone who sits down to listen to these stories already knows what's going to happen. They know the myth cold. These are performances that take place on a regular basis. They they are stories that are well known to everybody. There are no spoilers in Homeric epics. There are no spoilers in Greek tragedy either. Everyone who sits down to watch Oedipus Rex knows from the beginning that Oedipus killed his dad married his mom and that's why thebes is suffering. They all know that by the end of this play, Oedipus is going to blind himself, Jocasta is going to hang herself, and that like Creon will ascend to the throne. This is just basic knowledge. You walk in with this knowledge. It is not something that is developed. The tension of the play is not, you know, what's going to happen. There are no shock twists in Greek tragedy or any Greek literature whatsoever. Instead, the goal here is to enter what Aristotle calls catharsis. It is sort of a transmutation of tension into emotional release. Um, This is how the Greeks see it, and honestly, a lot of contemporary traditions see that as well. This is from Aristotle's Poetics that I'm quoting. Um, But The thinking here is not you're waiting to see what happens to Oedipus. Instead, you know what's going to happen to Oedipus. You know that he's screwed from the word go. That upon walking into the theater, there is no chance for Oedipus to get out of this unscathed. What you watch it for then, the way that you engage with this, is to watch Oedipus gradually figure out what you already know. You, in a sense, have a role like the gods in this case. You know all of the information, you know all of the events, you know exactly how this is going to play out. All you are watching is things get worse and worse and worse, predictably and fatedly, for Oedipus, until finally all the revelations are made, and he catches up to where you're at. He realizes how terrible the situation is, and in doing so, you feel that release. Think of it in terms of, like, a horror movie today. Like, you get one of those scenes where, like, somebody is exploring a dark room after splitting up with everybody else in their group because, you know, horror movies and everybody's an idiot. And you have this scene where you're watching this person, like, with a flashlight or something exploring a dark room. You know shit is going to go down. You know it. And every second that it doesn't, you get more and more and more uncomfortable. You know there's a jump scare coming. Like maybe the guy will jump up behind him. Or maybe the flashlight will play over you know the monster or whatever. You know it's going to happen. And you build up your tension until finally it happens and then you're good. You get this release, this emotional release. This is something that horror directors do all the time. Tons of other disciplines do the same thing. Like, this is how jokes work, this is how horror works, this is how, like, really intense, suspenseful situations work. Like, watch any Tarantino movie made in the last five years and you can see him do this like a master. Ever since Inglorious Bastards, he has, like, been perfecting the art of incredibly tense scenarios. Um, And Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is no exception. Um, All of these various media employ this strategy but typically on the small scale. For the Greeks, it's on the large scale as well. You watch Oedipus get closer and closer and closer to being so incredibly fucked over that like he can't get back from it. And every time he rejects it, it makes it a little more tense. Every time he gets closer to it, it gets a little more tense. Every time that like one of the other characters picks, on up, picks up on what's going on, it gets a little more tense. It builds and it builds and it builds and it builds and finally you get that moment where Oedipus realizes, oh shit, I killed my dad, I married my mom, I am engaged in this incestuous relationship and everything falls apart and all of that tension is released. Um, That's the goal here. That is the sort of artistic trajectory of Sophocles and most of the other tragedians. This is what tragedy is supposed to look like as far as um, Aristotle and the Greeks are concerned. And notice that's very different from the way that it works with Shakespeare. Um, Like Shakespeare intentionally perverts stories on a regular basis. Um, Like if you're familiar with King Lear, for example, in Shakespeare's King Lear, like King Lear has three daughters and they all like screw him over except there's one good daughter and like he goes to his evil daughters and they wreck him and they like kick him out of their house and things get just worse and worse for King Lear. And then in the Shakespeare version, King Lear dies and Cordelia fails and all these people just die and like everything is miserable and it's this like huge statement on the nature of unavoidable tragedy. But in the original story that Shakespeare is borrowing from, King Lear actually gets together with his good daughter, they kick out the evil daughters and everyone lives happily ever after. Shakespeare literally changed the story. People came to Shakespeare's play thinking, I am going to see this story where this old man has a lot of bad things happen to him, but ultimately everything works out for him in the end. And they got totally screwed. Like, they got totally surprised. Um, They were expecting a predictable story and got an unpredictable one instead. And so, going to a Shakespeare play, you had no idea what you were in for. Shakespeare's tragedies operate differently from Greek tragedies. They have multiple scenes. They can take lots of time. The characters all have their own independent plot lines. It is not just dead set focused on one mythic figure having his comeuppance. And additionally, they have action. Like, the action actually matters. You'll notice in Oedipus, there is no actual development, um... When you come into the play is when you leave the play. Nothing has changed except Oedipus has realized what has happened. Um, and Yocasta killed herself and Oedipus blinded himself. But these things are done off stage. you'll notice. Like, when you think about the entire story of Oedipus, as tangled as it is, it starts with Yocasta and Laius uh, deciding, you know, they get this prophecy, the son is going to kill Laius, so they cast out their son, they like put the band between his legs and they throw him out in the wilderness where he gets picked up by the shepherd transferred to this other family he grows up with this other family far far away in Corinth um, but he also gets a prophecy he's going to kill his mo- his father marry his mother to avoid the prophecy he goes out and he actually meets his dad his birth dad Laius, at the crossroads he kills Laius. he comes across Thebes answers the riddle of the Sphinx, saves the city, marries his mother. We know all of this, but notice that's a long period of time for events to cover. Like We're talking about the entire growth of Oedipus from a baby into a young man at the very least, like 20, 30 years in all likelihood by the time that we get to the events of this particular tragedy. But the tragedy rejects all of that. Like It's not going to show us those scenes. Instead, it's just going to show us this one scene when none of the actual action transpires. At this point, Oedipus has already been born, Oedipus has already been cast out, Oedipus has already gotten his prophecy, Oedipus has already murdered his father, Oedipus has already solved the riddle of the Sphinx, and Oedipus has already married his mother, and they already have kids. What changes is irrelevant. And notice that the play emphasizes this, both thematically and in its plot. Like, again, I know you're probably sick and tired of hearing me talk about themes, but damn if themes aren't the most important thing in basically any work of art across the board. And I don't care what, you know, the TV showrunners of Game of Thrones had to say about that. Um, Themes are important. Themes are what are actually being communicated to us by art. If art doesn't have themes, then it is pointless. It is empty. It doesn't have anything to show us. Um, It isn't actually doing anything besides looking pretty, and at that point you might as well be talking about ornamentation. Like, hey look, I carved a nice frame for this painting. Like, that's the level of depth we're talking about. Um, So we're going to talk about themes again, and Oedipus is full of themes. Um, But importantly, one of the major themes, perhaps the most important theme in Oedipus, is that of fate. Um, And we've talked about this in Homer as well, but it is front and center here. Um, notice that Apollo is the dominant god throughout this entire story. It's Apollo who sets the plague on um, on Thebes in the first place. It is Apollo who they go to for the prophecy, for the ogre. Um, it is Apollo who gives them prophecies throughout their history. like um, Oedipus goes to the Oracle at Delphi um, to get the news that he's going to kill his dad and his mom and marry his mom like way before the play actually starts. Um, Tiresias represents Apollo when he shows up and it's Oedip- it's Apollo who Oedipus cries to at the very end of the play. Um, once again we see this deep, deep connection between Apollo and fate. Um, as much as we said earlier that Apollo is the god of prophecy, it's very clear between the Iliad, the Odyssey, and now Oedipus Rex, Apollo very much is the, ex- the executor of fate. He carries out what fate prescribes. When fate says Oedipus is going to kill his father and marry his mother, Apollo sees that it is done. Um, and it is Apollo who is responsible, in a sense, for this fate being played out. And just like in the Iliad and the Odyssey, when you see Apollo like flicking heroes back, preventing them from sort of going beyond what their fate includes, like Diomedes trying to kill Aeneas or Patroclus trying to storm the walls of Troy, notice he Constantly, his whole purpose in the Iliad is to put heroes back in their place. This is a story of a man in his place a man who tries to get out of his place. In fact, a whole bunch of people try to outsmart Apollo, try to sort of overcome fate. Laos and Yocasta try and overcome fate by, you know, getting rid of their son in the first place. Oedipus tries to overcome fate by fleeing Corinth rather than, you know, risking killing his father by accident. And instead, they both end up just charging into their fates. In trying to avoid fate, they become prey to it. Um... But notice how this is emphasized throughout. Um, notice how, like every time Oedipus thinks that he has managed to dodge fate, every time that Jocasta th- assures him, "No, you didn't kill your father. Everything is fine." It just ends up pushing them closer and closer to this revelation, this brink. Um, it just gets them closer and closer to this sudden realization that their fates have not been avoided, that they have been. Pray to them all along and they haven't even known it. That fate was so much stronger than Oedipus that he couldn't even like realize that he was falling victim to it. Um, so but notice that that also plays along with the structure of this play here. There is a dread inevitability about this play from top to bottom. Um, Like, in a sense, this is the greatest of the Greek tragedies because its form matches its function. It is a play reminding us that we are but mortal, that we are at the whims of fate, that we are subject to its vicissitudes, that we cannot escape it. And it does so by showing this inevitable progression. Having everyone in the theater watch as Oedipus accomplishes nothing and gets closer and closer to realizing how foolish, how absurd, how pointless his actions have actually been, Um, how futile his efforts to avoid fate have ultimately turned out to be. Um, that's part of why this is the one I teach in here, rather than Antigone or any of the other really great Greek tragedies. Um, Because this just puts fate front and center and lines up so well um, just structurally. So with that in mind, I do in fact want to dig into the text in a few places. Like we obviously do not have time to go over the whole thing, um, but there are a couple of key components that I want to talk about. Um, First, again, you'll notice the whole setup is Apollo is mad at Thebes. Um, There is this huge disease going through Thebes. You should remember this from the Iliad. Like the Iliad opens the same way. The plague is ravaging the Greek camp. They know they pissed off Apollo. They're not sure why. So they go talk to an oracle and they find out what's going on. Um, But the message we get here in Oedipus Rex, um, we get like Oedipus... We get a couple of early speeches where it's sort of like, oh no, everybody's sick, and Oedipus is like, dude, I know, I'm trying to work on it, I've already sent a messenger to Pytho, to Apollo's house, meaning to Delphi, Um, and the messenger comes back, hooray, how convenient, Um, and we are told... Um, Creon says on page 6, What the god told me, that will I declare. Phoebus our lord gives us express command to drive pollution bred within this land out of the country and not cherish it beyond the power of healing. As he says later, um, Creon says, my liege, we had a leader once over this land called Laos, ere you held the helm of state. And Oedipus says, so I did hear. I never saw the man. Creon says, the man is dead, and now we are clearly bidden to bring to account certain his murderers. Which brings up a sort of new theme in Oedipus. Um, Oedipus takes upon himself the role of detective. And again, like, as much as this play is about fate, it is also very much about knowledge. The two are tied together very intimately here. So as much as this play is structured as a Greek tragedy, probably the closest surrogate isn't, you know, those plays that you read in high school from Shakespeare. It's actually a detective novel. Um, Like, think instead of, you know, Poirot or the Agatha Christie mysteries or, you know, Sherlock Holmes. Something has already transpired. And it is now up to our character not to change events, they're already done, but to figure out what has happened. Um, Oedipus is charged with who, with rooting out the murderer of Laus, the king who preceded him. And Oedipus commits himself to this, like he doesn't see a problem with this. Again, he is oblivious to the fact that he is in fact Laius's murderer. Um, So, you know, Oedipus asks, where on earth are they? Where shall be found this dim-seen track mark of an ancient crime? Creon says it's within this land. Whoever it is, is here. Uh, But that's it. Like, that's the only information they get. The one witness they mention. um, There is only one person who saw what happened. Um, Creon says he went professedly on pilgrimage, but since he started, came back home no more. Um... When Oedipus asks, uh, who was anyone looking on? Creon said, no, they perished all but one. He fled affrighted, and of what he saw had but one thing to say for certain. Robbers, he said, met them and slew him by no single strength but multitude of hands. So the assumption here is actually a mislead. Multiple people killed Laus. Um That is the report of our witness. Now we're actually going to hear from the witness later in the in the book and he's going to like change his testimony i.e we've had a bad rumor here like bad information it got distorted along the way um but it's also significant to note that like that's how this whole play progresses Oedipus charged with finding out who murdered Laius, starts calling in seers and witnesses each of the seers comes each of the witnesses comes they all deliver their little fragment of information and we get closer and closer um, we get closer to watching the net tighten around Oedipus. We get closer to seeing the noose get start to strangle him. So at this point, Oedipus has no need to suspect. Um, he did, in fact, kill that one dude at a crossroads, which we will like be told later. Um, but more importantly, it was multiple people who killed Laos. Um, robbers on the road, so not Oedipus. Um So the next step, after hearing from Creon coming back from Pytho, is to summon, of course, the most reputable um, sage in Thebes, Tiresias. And this scene I do want to focus on. I do want to take it apart. Because this is one of the, like, for one thing, Tiresias is by far the most reputable seer. Like, we saw Odysseus talk to Tiresias in in Odyssey. He had the distinction of being the one guy who could still do prophecy even in death. Um, like, he's obviously extremely respected by the Greeks, and he is presented extremely respectfully here. But I also want to stress how Sophocles presents Tiresias, the specific words that he uses, because this is a really brilliantly written scene. Um, so Oedipus summons Tiresias, that is what I did, and with no slackness for by Creon's advice, I sent twice over, and for some time now, to strange he is not here. Like I sent for him, he's supposed to be here by now, finally he arrives. Enter Tiresias, led by a boy. Oedipus says, Tiresias, thou who searchest everything, communicable or nameless, both in heaven and on the earth, thou canst not see the city, but knowest no less... What pestilence visits it? You are blind, but you are already informed. You have direct information about what's going on. Wherefrom our only savior and defense we find, Sir King, in thee. For Phoebus, if thou dost not know it from the messengers, to us who sent to ask him sent word back that from this sickness no release should come till we had found and slain the men who slew Laus or driven them banished from the land. Wherefore do thou, not sparing Ogre, Either through birds or any other way thou hast of divination, save thyself and save the city and me. Save the whole mass by this dead corpse infected. For in thee stands our existence, and for men to help with might and main is of all tasks the highest. In short, help us. You will be helping yourself if you do, because, like, everybody is bound up in this. Everybody is likely to become sick and die. Like, help us help you. And Tiresias responds, Alas... How terrible it is to know where no good comes of knowing. Of these matters I was full well aware, but let them slip me, else I had not come hither. Tiresias' response is, please don't make me tell you. But also notice that first line, how terrible it is to know where no good comes of knowing. If our second theme is tied up into the fact that this is kind of a mystery in its own right, then that second theme is knowledge. But notice the Greek attitude toward knowledge here is very dark. Tiresias does not want to give this information. He knows that it will not be received well. And for that matter, he knows that it's not going to bring happiness to anyone. It's not going to solve any problems. Remember, everything is already done. Oedipus is already sleeping with his mother. He has already murdered his father. It's too late. Um, It's over. Um, Everything has happened already. And the only thing that is going to happen in the course of this play is Yocasta's suicide and Oedipus blinding himself. Which Tiresias knows will come about because of the revelation of this information. As much as people are dying because of plague, there is no easy solution here. Everyone is already trapped in this web of fate. So Tiresias says, please just leave me alone. Oedipus asks, well, what is it? How out of heart thou hast come? Tiresias says, let me go home. So shalt thou bear the load most easily, if thou wilt take my counsel and I mine. Tiresias' advice, just stop. Stop investigating, let me go home. Don't ask me any questions because you don't want to hear the answers. Now, Oedipus obviously is oblivious. And notice, this is one of the most interesting dichotomies about this character in this play. Oedipus is famous because he is wise, because he could solve the riddle of the Sphinx. Um, and Tiresias actually like talks to him about this. Um, there, once he turns on Tiresias, the first thing that comes up... Like Tiresias says, this is page 18, about three-quarters of the way down, "'Were you not excellent at solving riddles?' "'I thought you were smart. Can't you solve riddles?' And Oedipus responds, "'I, cast in my teeth, matters in which you must allow my greatness.' "'If you're so smart, why didn't you solve the riddle?' "'Tiresias, supposed seer, knower of all, inside information with Apollo, "'why didn't you solve the Sphinx's problem and get this city saved?' "'If you're so smart, you fix this.' I, on the other hand, Oedipus, I know what I'm talking about. I solved the riddles. I am wise. And yet Tiresias is stressing it is his blindness, it is his inability to see that is causing this problem at this point. Um, so... Oedipus says, Thou hast not spoken loyalty, loyally when he asks to go home, nor friendly toward the state that bred thee, cheating her of this response. And Tiresias says, Because I do not see thy words, not even thine going to the mark. So, not to be in the same plight, and the senator begs him. And Tiresias says, Ye are all unknowing. My say in any sort I will not say, lest I display thy sorrow. Tiresias telling people isn't going to change the situation. Again, it's all already done. The misery is all around them, they just don't realize it yet. Telling them what's going on isn't going to save them. Telling them is going to damn them even more. Make them aware of how damned they actually are. Now eventually Tiresias does in fact break down. Like they prevail upon him. Um, Oedipus calls him a traitor. Tiresias pushes back against this. Um, Finally, Oedipus says, page 15, middle of the page, at least I will not, being so far in anger, spare anything of what is clear to me. No, I suspect you joined to hatch the deed. Yea, did it, all but slaying with your own hands. And if you were not blind, I should aver the act was your work only. At this point, Oedipus is so ticked that Tiresias is not willing to answer the question. His assumption is that Tiresias is himself the murderer. He's protecting himself. And Tiresias says, Was it so? I charge you to abide by your decree as you proclaimed it, nor from this day forth speak word to these or me, being of this land yourself, the abominable contaminator. Now at this point, Oedipus promise, promised, like once they find whoever did it, they're going to banish him. He's not going to be allowed in the city. They're going to like heap curses on him. Like they will protect him. They will not kill him. But nonetheless, they will in fact like cast him out. And Tiresias says, okay, so do that because you are the one. You are the contaminator. Um. Notice that line, he is revealing the information here. Like after Oedipus has been pushing him all this time, Tiresias says, you are the one contaminating this land, you are the one who murdered Laius." And Oedipus says, so shamelessly set you this story on foot and think perhaps you shall go free? Tiresias says, I am free, for I have in me the strength of truth. And Oedipus is immediately suspicious. Tiresias says, I am free, there's nothing you can do to, you, to me. He stresses that multiple times. He knows how he's going to die. He's a seer. He can do that. Um, but upon revealing to Oedipus that he is the murderer, Oedipus jumps to the conclusion that Tiresias is plotting against him. That they have concocted this accusation to make Oedipus like guilty before the eyes of the people, to sort of usurp his position. Um, and he will charge Creon shortly afterwards with conspiring with Oedip- with Tiresias in like, the next section. Um now Oedipus asks again because he's shocked initially um who prompted you for for from your art it was not yourself you made me speak against my will notice the conversation here they're talking past each other Oedipus asks who prompted you who was conspiring with you Tiresias responds you you are conspiring with me you were the one who were who is Begging me to give up this information. You are the one conspiring to destroy yourself and making me complicit in your conspiracy. Oedipus says, Speak. What? Repeat that I may learn it better. Tiresias says, Did you not understand me at first hearing, or are you tempting me when you say speak? And Oedipus is now a little confused. Not so to say for certain, speak again. And Tiresias makes it so abundantly clear. I say that you are Laus's murderer, he whom you seek. And Oedipus immediately challenges him again. Not without chastisement shall you twice over utter wounds. Tiresias, however, is frustrated. You can tell this. Then shall I say something more that may incense you further? You asked me to tell you. I am telling you the truth. You killed Laus. This is not supposed to be rocket science. What more do you want me to tell you? So Oedipus says, Say what you please, it will be said in vain. Tiresius says, I say you know not in what worst of shame you live together with those nearest you and see not in what evil plight you stand. Tiresius is making allusion now to his sleeping with Yocasta. You live together with those nearest you, i.e. his wife. And yet they're in the worst of shame because of the incestuous relationship here. Now, notice the conflict as it develops here. Do You expect to go on reveling in utterances like this. Yes, if the truth has any force at all, because Tiresias has not said anything but the truth at this point, despite Oedipus' accusations. Why, so it has, Oedipus says, except for you. It is not so with you, blind as you are in eyes and ears and mind. Now notice blindness is the other dimension of this theme of knowledge and wisdom. Notice that here, Tiresias is in fact blind. He is famously a blind seer. He has to be led into the room. Um, he can't see. But that said, he can still see better than Oedipus can. The fact that he can't see with his eyes doesn't mean that he can't see with his mind. Oedipus's accusation here is honestly completely hypocritical. Because Oedipus doesn't see. Oedipus doesn't realize. And Tiresias calls him on this. Fool, you reproach me as not one of these shall not reproach you soon. They will all call you blind soon, in a matter of time. And remember, when Oedipus realizes what happens, his act is to blind himself, to make his inability to see both physical as well as mental. Oedipus responds, you cannot hurt me nor any other who beholds the light, your life being all one night. And Tiresias says, nor is it fated, you by my hand should fall. Apollo is sufficient. He will bring it all to pass. Tiresias knows it doesn't matter. Oedipus can't hurt Tiresias, Tiresias can't hurt Oedipus. This is all in Apollo's hands. He will bring it all to pass. In a sense, Apollo is the one orchestrating this entire play. Like Sophocles may have been the one to write it, but it is written on events that Apollo himself orchestrated. He concocted this whole story. He manipulated all of these players. When fate said this was going to happen, Apollo made sure that it would. Typically using prophecy. Everyone who searches for a prophecy in the story of Oedipus rushes forward towards their fate, towards the doom that they are trying to avoid. It is very much Apollo who is sort of pushing them on into this. Now notice the last passage that Tiresias gives us before he takes off. Um, or rather, the last passage on page 17. Um, again, sort of getting at this subject of sight and blindness. Um, Tiresias says to the senator after Oedipus like, blames Creon for plotting with Tiresias, Uh, Tiresias says, king as you are, we must be peers at least in argument. I am your equal there, for I am Loxus's servant, meaning Apollos, and not yours. So never need be rid of Creon's train. And since you have reproached me with my blindness, I say, you have your sight, and do not see what evils are about you, nor with whom, nor in what home you are dwelling. Do you know from whom you are? Yea, you are ignorant, that to your own you are an enemy, whether on earth, alive, or under it. Soon from this land shall drive you stalking grim, your mother's and your father's two-edged curse, with eyes then dark, though they look proudly now. What place on earth shall not be harbour, then, for your lamenting? What Cythereon peak shall not be resonant soon, which, when you discern what hymen song was that which wafted you on a fair voyage to foul anchorage under yon roof? And multitudes besides, of ills you know not of, shall level you down to yourself, down to your children. Go, trample on Creon, and on this mouth of mine, but know there is not one of all mankind that shall be bruised more utterly than you. Notice the prophecy that he is making here. First off, he accuses Oedipus. You have your sight, and yet you don't know a damn thing about you, or anything. You don't know who your parents are, you don't know where you came from, you don't know who is responsible for this murder, and you don't know that you're sleeping with your mother. Everything about your life is invisible, opaque, hidden from you, and yet you call Tiresias blind. What's more, Tiresias says, soon this land will drive you away, soon you will find no place um, to lament for you, and your eyes will then be dark, because he will be blind. Um, you will not know anything. There are so many ills awaiting you, and you are not aware of it, and more than all of the threats that you were heaping on Ty- Tiresias' head or Creon's, worse will befall you." Um, Oedipus is oblivious to his own situation, his own suffering, and yet he insists on being wise. He is the one who will discover the truth, and yet he knows so little. Now Oedipus dismisses Tiresias, he gets rid of him. Um, He accuses Tiresias of giving all of these riddles, which is where Tiresias shoots back that I thought you were really good at riddles. Finally, Tiresias ins- gives us, like, the complete story at the very end here. Um, I go, having said that I came to say, not that I fear your or frown, for you possess no power to kill me, but I say to you, the man you have been seeking, threatening him, and loud proclaiming him for Laus' murder, that man is here. Believed a foreigner here sojourning, but shall be recognized for Theban born hereafter, yet not pleased in the event, for blind instead of seeing, and poor for wealthy, to a foreign land, a staff to point his footsteps he shall go. Also to his own sons he shall be found related as a brother, though their sire, and of the woman from whose womb he came, both son and spouse, one that has raised up seed to his own father and has murdered him. Now get you in and ponder what I say, and if you can detect me in a lie, then come and say that I am no true seer. Notice that Tiresias describes his entire situation here. Oedipus is a foreigner who is actually from here. He claims to be a foreigner, is believed to be a foreigner, but shall be recognized for Theban-born. He is recognized as seeing, and yet he is blind. He is recognized as being wealthy, and yet is poor. Um, his own sons he is related to as a brother, because the same woman who bore them bore Oedipus. And what's more, he has killed his own father. Um, He has raised up seed to his own father and has murdered him. All of this describes Oedipus, and yet Oedipus cannot decipher this. The riddles are too much for him. At this point, he's not even there to listen. He left. That's why it says retires in the margin. Um, now, we get another chorus passage here, and then Oedipus talks to Creon like there's a direct accusation like that he is conspiring with Tiresias to sort of oust him. It's important to notice that like Creon actually doesn't have any interest in being king. I really love his speech on pages 23 to 24, where he's like, um, why would I want to be king? Um, would Why would I rather choose a sovereignty with fears than the same power with undisturbed repose? Neither am I by nature covetous to be a king rather than play the king, nor any man who has sagacity. Now I have all things without fear from you. Reigned I myself, I must do much I hated. Um, how were a throne then pleasanter for me than painless empire and authority? Grian has all the advantages of being king without having to deal with all the disadvantages of like being subject to the populace. Everybody calls out and complains to Oedipus, but he also gets to rule behind the scenes and do whatever he wants. So Creon's got it made. Like, he doesn't have any reason to try and depose Oedipus. He's he's very happy where he is, um, which I think is honestly kind of interesting and sort of telling about the Greeks' attitude toward rule at this point in time. Um, they're starting to become wise to the fact that being called the king isn't necessarily as great as just having the power and nobody noticing. Um... But we also get in this section, Jocasta shows up and starts talking to Oedipus. Um, and the first strains of actual revelation are revealed to us. Um, we hear about both of the prophecies. Uh, Jocasta's prophecy that um, that uh, like their son would kill his father, Oedipus's prophecy that um, he would kill his father, um, we get the information from the messenger about like there is the, there are those robbers who murdered the king uh, and thus Oedipus couldn't possibly have been the murderer. He is safe, um, which is very much a mislead. Um, now, later is... Like, this initial interaction with Jocasta isn't all that interesting. They're basically just trading prophecies and talking about information, um, which isn't relevant to either of them at this point. Um, Like, Jocasta thinks that the person who murdered her husband is, you know, somebody else. Oedipus doesn't think that he is the one who the Prophecy was talking about. Um, It'll take a while before they actually sort that out. Um, but it's important to notice that Jocasta herself is a really interesting character in this situation as well. By the next scene, after the whole conversation with the, with the chorus, when Jocasta is still there, but the messenger shows up to explain that Oedipus is not Polybus's son, um, Jocasta starts to get worried. She figures it out before Oedipus does. Um, so after they, they have exchanged the prophecies... After Oedipus explains it, like, he dodged his fate by getting out of Corinth so he wouldn't kill Polybus, and Jocasta has dodged fate by getting rid of his son, um, you'll notice that the messenger from uh, Polybus comes up to Oedipus and says that Polybus is dead. And Oedipus is, is excited about it. He's like, yeah, I dodged that bullet. Now I don't have to worry about it. My dad's dead and it's not my fault. And as long as I don't marry Loxus, Polybus's wife, then I should be good to go. But then the messenger reveals, no, that's not so true. Um, he says at the bottom of page 38 Polybus was not a king to you. Polybus isn't your sire. He isn't your father, not your blood father, anyway. And Jocasta is here to hear this, but she doesn't say anything, not yet. When they do address her on page 40, Oedipus says, Lady, you remember him whose coming we were wishing for, but now, does he mean him? And Jocasta says, Why ask who t'was he spoke of? Nay, never mind, never remember it, t'was idly spoken. And Oedipus says, Nay, it cannot be that having such a clue I should refuse to solve the mystery of my parentage. At this point, Oedipus is like, Oh, well, if I'm not Polybus's son, then whose son am I? But remember, the messenger also told us that he found Oedipus with the like rods stuck through his heels. Jocasta recognizes that. So her response is, for heaven's sake, if you care for your own life, don't seek it. I am sick, and that's enough. Note the emphasis here, the sort of thematic significance of first that discussion with Tiresias, where he refuses to give Oedipus this information, and then here again, where we have Jocasta saying, stop looking for the truth. As crazy as this may sound in our, you know, enlightened age of science and so on, what the message very much is here, what the theme seems to suggest is that information is not a good thing. Um, Finding out about your parentage, finding out who the murderers are, will often bring you only despair, tragedy. And remember, that also ties into the structure of this play. Like, this is a play about revelation. We sit here not to watch things happen, but to watch characters realize the significance of what they've already done. This is a play about hindsight in a very real sense. Um, Again, the facts are what they are, but they can't be changed. And if they can't be changed, then what's the point of finding out about them? Like, yes, admittedly, Apollo is like plaguing the city. That's, That's bad. We don't want a bunch of people dead. Plagues are bad, everyone, in case you weren't aware. Um, but notice they insist, both Jocasta and Tiresias, that finding this information out, finding out the truth, uncovering it is a bad thing. And it's significant, too, that like in the Greek attitude, truth is aletheia. I think we've talked about this a little bit in class, but I'll bring it up again. You should re- recognize the word lathe. That comes, that's related to the river Lethe, which we discussed like early on in class. It's related to the river Styx. Um, When you cross the river Lethe or the river Leaf, you forget everything. Um, Alethea, that alpha privative at the front, that's like when we say um, agnostic to indicate that we do not believe in God or atheistic for that matter, Um, like the opposite of the other thing, to uncover the truth is just that for the Greeks, an uncovering, an unforgetting. Aletheia is to unforget, um, And it's interesting that this play very much bears out that idea. See, the truth for Oedipus is covered up. It is hidden. It is something that he does not know, not because it's not something he's been able to find out, but because it has been disguised, it has been secreted away. To find out the truth is not a process of like learning the way that you do with like scientific experimentation. it's a process of undoing all of the hiding, undoing all of the covering up, uh, tying together all of the disparate pieces of this story. And notice how it's done. Like yes, we get Tiresias at first, but really the key pieces that need to be tied together are Oedipus's prophecy, Laius's prophecy. Then the messenger who tells Oedipus that he is not Polybus's son, and finally the messenger who tells Oedipus that he is actually the son of Laius, which ties it all together, um, which makes this con- this like connection between the murderer of Laius on the one hand and Oedipus the king on the other. Um, this process is a par- process of gradually unwrapping the truth of gradually revealing it one piece at a time, uncovering it, uh, revealing what was already there. See, for the Greeks, at least at this stage, and again, like, Plato is writing at roughly the same time, and he's approaching truth from a slightly different direction, but actually one that's quite similar, insofar as he thinks that, like, truth is about unforgetting in the same way, like, they all have the knowledge of the ideal forms, but then they lose it. Um, For the Greeks, knowledge, truth... Understanding is a process of sort of declouding your mind, of tearing away all of the distractions, all of the things that get in the way, and unhiding and uncovering. Um, and this uncovering only brings about misery for Oedipus. Um, this uncovering basically reveals him, lays him bare, so everyone else can see him. And notice, like, again, Tiresias has already seen it, Jocasta has already seen it, the people are starting to put it together. And when Oedipus finally does come out with his eyes after having blinded himself, um, notice how, like, everybody is talking about him. We get the information about Oedipus blinding himself and Jocasta hanging herself, not, like, on stage, but from messengers. The second messenger says the illustrious Jocasta is no more. Um, he reports um, I know no further how she perished for Oedipus break-in Crying aloud, for whom it was impossible to watch the ending of her misery. But on him we gazed as he went raging all about, beseeching us to furnish him a sword and say where he could find his wife. No wife, rather the mother soil, both of himself and children. And as he raved thus, some power shows him, at least none of us present did. Then shouting loud, he sprang upon the doors as following some guide and burst the bars out of their sockets and alights within. There we beheld his wife hanging entwined in a twined noose. He, seeing her with a groan, looses the halter then when on the ground lay the poor wretch, dreadful it was to see what follows. Snatching from her dress gold pins wherewith she was adorned, he lifted them and smote the nerves of his own eyeball, saying something like this that they should see no more evils like those he had endured or wrought. Darkling, thereafter, let him gaze on forms he might not see and fail to recognize the faces he desired. Notice Oedipus blinds himself at the very moment that he is most exposed. Um, everybody sees this, everybody recognizes it. We don't even see it on stage. We get it secondhand through these messengers. It becomes public information, but we don't even need to see it as the audience. Remember, we knew it the whole time. Oedipus is literally the last person to figure it out. He is as blind as Tiresias makes him out to be. As blind as he ultimately makes himself to be, even if his reasons aren't that. Um, so notice you know, notice that the Greeks do not have a very high opinion of this process, some things are better left covered, some things are better left unknown, you don't necessarily gain anything by finding stuff out about your history or about your parentage or about your life usually that just ends in pain and tragedy, um, rather to leave it hidden um, again, Aletheia implies a negation it's negative. Um, it is an uncovering. Uh, best to just leave it covered in most cases. Um, but notice too, like, how the other sort of themes and ideas floating around this text a little bit, the the sort of blame and argumentation that we see. Um, there's a s- segment fairly early on in um, one of the chorus sections, which I skipped over initially, but I would like to sort of draw a little attention to it now. On page 33, after Jocasta and Oedipus have agreed that, you know, it couldn't be Oedipus because it was robbers who murdered Laius, um the second stanza of the chorus's speech, 1-2, says, Pride is the germ of kings. Pride, when puffed up, vainly, with many things unseasonable, unfitting, mounts the wall, only to hurry to that fatal fall where feet are vain to serve her. But the task propitious to the city, God I ask never to take away. God I will never cease to hold my stay. Now the god in here could probably be just a weird translation thing. It might be referring to Zeus, Theos. Um, It might be ambiguous, in which case it's probably referring to Apollo. Um, At any rate, notice that the emphasis here is on pride. Pride is what brings Oedipus to his fall, which is another familiar theme that we should know of. Like, think of Odysseus shouting his name back to Polyphemus, ultimately getting him in trouble because of his own hubris. Think of uh, Patroclus charging the walls of Troy um, when he was explicitly told by Achilles not to go farther than forcing the Trojans off. that was also hubris. Oedipus too is proud. he also brings about his own destruction. he is convinced because of his wisdom he can solve this dilemma, can solve this mystery. but what Tiresias stresses to him is really he is more oblivious about his history than anyone else in this entire city. Oedipus is the stupidest man in Thebes because he doesn't even know himself um, in a way that everybody else basically does. So this hubris, this pride, rushes Oedipus toward the fall. And it is Oedipus himself who drives this fall as well. Remember how I said that like this whole thing is Oedipus trying to solve his own mystery? Every step he gets closer is a step closer to unraveling himself, to falling, to dooming himself to his own unhappiness and misery. This, this part of the chorus identifies that. Says, you know, he is destroying himself, and the faster he goes, the more proud he is, the faster he destroys himself. But notice, too, that Oedipus himself recognizes this. On page 49, after he's blinded himself, he gives this speech, Apollo, Apollo fulfills, O friends, my measure of ills, fills my measure of woe, author was none but I, none other of the blow, for why was I to see when to descry, no sight on earth could have a charm for me. On the one hand, he sees this as being Apollo's responsibility. Apollo is the one who did this. Apollo fulfilled his measure of woe. Apollo is the power that wrought this on him. But he also acknowledges the author was none but I. Oedipus himself is destroying himself. By rushing forward into this mystery, by trying to solve it, he has executed his hubris, he has brought this on himself, in the same way that Odysseus, by challenging Polyphemus, by shouting out his name, brings Poseidon's wrath on himself. See, that idea of hubris is frequently connected to standing tall. We've talked about this. Oedipus here is standing tall. He is saying, yes, Apollo, tell me the truth when in fact the truth will destroy him. He is saying, I am not afraid of the truth, when in fact he should be terrified. He accuses Tiresias of telling lies when he himself is completely oblivious to his situation and is unaware of the truth that Tiresias is telling. Now, a couple more passages that I just want to sort of like light upon as we finish this out, finish this conversation. Um... Note that he himself is, like, m- much like many of the other uh, people we've seen um, in Greek, you know, stories, like Helen, for example, he has a passage on page 50 where he says, "...may he perish whoever twas drew me out of the cruel gyre that bound my feet on the lea, he who saved me alive, who rescued me from fate, showing no kindness to me, sorrow so great had I died then, had spared both mine and me." Remember when Helen in the Iliad says that she wishes she were dead, that she had never been born, that she has only caused suffering and pain? Here Oedipus is basically saying the same thing. Whoever it was who saved me, who brought me to Polybus in Corinth, that person is cursed. May he die Um, because he has brought about this horrific misery of Oedipus and everyone around him, had spared both mine and me. Oedipus, too, wishes he had never been born, in a sense. Or having been born, that he had never survived to, to like, come to this point, to kill his father and marry his mother. Uh, but notice, too, he also expects worse. On page 53, he has a long speech in response to Creon, and he states, um, "...nevermore be this my native town burdened with me for living inmate." He's exiling himself, he's leaving, he's never coming back. Rather, suffer me to haunt the mountains where my mountain is, Cytherion, which, which my mother and my sire living appointed for my sepulchre. Put me back on the mountain where I was supposed to be abandoned in the first place. That, as they meant, my slayers, I may expire. Howbeit this much I know. Neither disease nor aught beside can kill me. Never else had I been rescued from the brink of death but for some dire calamity. Ah well, let our own fate wag onward as it may. And for my sons, Creon, take thou no care upon thee. They are men, so that they never can lack the means to live wherever they be. Notice Oedipus expects worse. Neither disease or anything else can kill him because he has been rescued from the brink of death for some more dire calamity. Something worse is going to happen to him. He knows it. And yet notice where he has been fighting against fate this whole time, where his entire story up until this point has been, you know, Laeus trying to prevent his fate from transpiring and then Oedipus trying to prevent his fate from transpiring. All these people trying to outsmart or outwit or outplay fate. Notice here he knows something worse is going to happen or else I wouldn't have survived. But let our fate wag onward as it may. Ah, well, let our own fate wag onward as it may. What is he going to do? It's fate. He accepts it here. In the same lesson that Achilles learned in the Iliad and Odysseus to some degree learned in the Odyssey, he accepts his fate. He recognizes, yes, I am absolutely miserable. 100% totally miserable. Probably the most miserable person in the entirety of Greek myth and history. I will be so miserable that Freud will write books about how I am a complex, that every young man wants to kill his father and marry his mother because... I don't even know. Freud is a weird guy, um, but notice this is so significant. This is so miserable, and yet he accepts it. I take that. Um, now, notice the moral of the chorus as well. The last passage on fifty-five to fifty-six. The chorus says, "Dwellers in Thebes, behold this Oedipus, the man who solved the riddle, marvelous." which has to be a little bit ironic there, like, congratulations, you've figured out the mystery, you are absolutely the worst person ever. A prince of men whose lot what citizen did not with envy see, how deep the billows of calamity above him roll. Watch therefore and regard that supreme day, and of no mortal say, that man is happy, till, vexed by no grievous ill, he passed life's goal. The conclusion they make here, this moral, the sort of takeaway from this, is don't say of any mortal man or woman that they are happy until they're dead. Which is actually the like, jumping off point for like a whole philosophical discussion. Like Aristotle writes the entire Nicomachean Ethics with this line in mind. Um, he quotes it extensively. Um, but that's a conversation for another class and another day, I'm afraid. We, however, are at the end of ours. Um, but what I want to stress, what I want to drive home as like the culminating statement about Oedipus and about fate and the whole Greek attitude um, is bound, bound up in this line. Don't call anyone happy until they're dead. Um, because no one knows what fate has in store for a person, and no one can change it from the Greek perspective. Like, as much as we are increasingly turning toward a more, I hesitate to say fatalistic, but it is kind of fatalistic, less free attitude about human beings. Like, as much as we now think that we're kind of doomed to be in our positions, that you can't fight fate, we still have a very high premium on free will. We think we control our own destinies. We think we make meaningful decisions. The Greeks do not. That is sort of the driving factor of their entire culture. That is why Apollo is such a major god figure for them. That is why fate is such an important theme of so much of their work. If there is one thing to take away from this class thematically, it's that the Greeks do not believe in free will. They believe in fate. They And they believe it profoundly. They believe that they can't escape it the way that Oedipus can't escape it. They believe that Humanity, mortality, is ultimately sort of pointless and not important. Achilles, upon dying, goes to Hades and doesn't have a, like, really impressive afterlife. Like you saw in the end of the Odyssey, we didn't cover it extensively, unfortunately, but even then they're still just obsessing about their death in Book 24, just like they were when Odysseus saw them on the island. The Greeks do not consider themselves to be to be able to live glamorous lives. They are what they are. They are what they are fated to be. Um, they can't change that fate. They are doomed from day one. And I want to stress that because despite that, Despite their conviction that they really could not change the world, that the stories were what they were and that, you know, a person was born and would die in the same station, they still produced a surprising and robust literature and, like, had a really profound sense of beauty. Um, They believed that they would, you know, live on this earth, do what they could do, and then be done. And so they had to make every day count. Um, Because that was it. Like, there wasn't anything waiting for them in the afterlife. There wasn't some, you know, like, really important, like, reincarnation policy or something that would, like, get them to the afterlife. No. Like Achilles, he had to get his actions done. He had to get what honor he could as quickly as possible so the bards would sing songs about him, so he would live on in song and in memory. Um... That's very much what the Greeks are all about. That is the highest level to which they attain. I mean, Oedipus, as horrible as his situation is, is a story we still read today. Achilles, young though he may have died, and petulant though he may have been throughout most of the Iliad, is someone whose story we still read today. In some sense, these guys are in fact immortal. They have succeeded. They have transcended their boundaries. Just like how Homer stresses in the Odyssey with, you know, Odysseus and all of the bards. Like, these bards keep our culture going. They keep our civilization going. It's playwrights and artists and mythmakers and writers who basically give us immortality insofar as it can be achieved. Um, but that said... it's not something you can actually decide for the Greeks. That's, I suppose, is the difference between us on the whole. For us today, your actions do matter. And you should live like the Greeks lived, with every day being meaningful and important and, you know, desperate, because it could be the last. You never know what Zeus has in store for you. You can't trust the gods to play fair with you. Um, But on the other hand, the pessimism, doomedness, the do not call a man happy until he is dead. That, I think, we have rightly transcended, I suppose. But it is important that for the Greeks, the two went together. Um, you couldn't control your fate, so the little bit that you could control, you had to do as best as you possibly could. You couldn't beat your fate, you couldn't overcome your fate, you can't be greater than you're supposed to be sure. But within those boundaries, if you are Achilles and you are super strong and heroic, then yeah, you do the best you can as Achilles. You fight for your friends, and you do not just sit in a tent petulantly and whine about how dishonored you have been, because really you don't know. And you shouldn't, and you have friends who you should be concerned about. But if you're also Eumaeus the swineherd, you can go about that well or badly too. You better to be Eumaeus the loyal swineherd feted by Odysseus, rewarded with land and title and, you know, incredible honors um, as you beat up all the suitors, than Melanthius, the Goatherd, who gets his nose and his junk cut off because he's a traitorous jerk. There are certain things you can control, um, so best to use them as best as you can. And I suppose that there's something kind of fitting about that now, as we're all sitting in quarantine very much out of control of our lives, like not even able to go outside and do stuff. Um, The Greeks recognized that all of life is quarantine. You never have control of the situation. You never know what's coming around the bend. But you take what little you've got, and you make the best you can out of it. You don't, you know, get totally bent out of shape trying to fight against the things you can't control. If you do, you get screwed, like Oedipus. The best you can do is accept Your fate. Work within it. Try to be happy insofar as you have power over your own little situation, I guess. But anyway, enough soapboxing. That's our class. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope the Greek myths have been rich for you. I hope that I have presented them well. I hope that, like, the coronavirus didn't put a total bummer on the whole thing. Um, And I hope you keep up with this stuff. Like, I know that, you know, Extra Credit 3 is out there. By all means, complete it. Um, But the focus there is to go look for for other myths in contemporary life. But that has sort of like a two-sidedness to it. Like on the one hand, definitely look for the old myths being retold now. Like Kingsman retelling Pygmalion or like, you know, uh, the story of Orpheus being retold today in various forms. Um, But at the same time, like look for the myths that you believe in. Um, Look for the myths that you hold true. Uh, Even if they are founded by science or founded by religion, if we don't typically call them myths, um, think about those. Be alert for those. And think about how they affect the way that you look at the world. Think about the stories that you've heard and have repeated to yourself since you're a kid have defined the way that, you know, you think and act today. Because that's the goal here. Like, even more than, you know, you should know about myths... You should know about yourself. You should know about your own myths. You should know about the way that myths inform an entire society. How, you know, I've been training you from the beginning to say, you know, like, sure, this happens in this myth, but what does that mean? What does that say about the Greeks? What is What are the Greeks saying about themselves? What is Homer telling us to be? Um, think about that in your own life. Think about what shapes your reality. What stories are you telling yourself to understand the world? Um... Myths aren't gone. They're just just—they're just different now. They're very much different. Um, and feel free to look me up for General Humanities 202. I'm not sure if I'm teaching in the fall. I haven't heard about my schedule yet. I think everybody is just completely baffled as to what the whole world is going to look like in the next few months. So who knows. Um, but I'd absolutely love to have you. And in the meantime, go. Be free. Enjoy your upcoming summer vacation if it turns out to be anything resembling a summer vacation Um, I hope you've enjoyed this class. I know I have.